turn in the book of Hebrews to Hebrews chapter 7. We have been in the book of Hebrews for, I don't know, 15, 16 weeks. It's been a great trip through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is um, a God-exalting book. It exalts Jesus Christ. So last week we took uh, a brief break from the book of Hebrews and looked at the book of Matthew to see the treasure that we have in Jesus and talk about how the treasure that we have in Jesus is meant to cause great joy in us. And, and the whole point of the book of Hebrews is that we would have joy in Christ and have joy as followers of Christ and disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we're coming back into Hebrews, and to prepare you, it's a very long passage. It's, it's 25 verses. We're going to be reading this morning, verses 1 to 25. Um, it is one of the more detailed passages of Hebrews. So I was joking around with Matthew Easton. I said this morning, pinch each other. Um, it is one of the more detailed passages, but it is a wonderful, deep passage. If you remember, about three weeks ago, the author of Hebrews, we went through it, was warning us not to be dull of hearing. And he warned us and he said, he said, listen, pay attention, because what I'm about to tell you is hard to understand. Well, that's this passage this morning. So he said, what I'm about to tell you is hard to understand. Well, it's, it's not hard, but it requires some digging. So this morning, get your shovels out. We're going to do some deep, deep digging in God's word. So help each other. Let's pay attention to God's word. Let's read scripture. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of all the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office, they have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Are you tracking so far? <laughs> Let's keep going. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For... The one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it's witnessed of him. 
You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. That should be shocking to you right now. The law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest by the oath, with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus, all of this, what he's been talking about, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. This is the main idea of the entire passage, verse 25. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the good news of this entire passage. There's a lot of detail that we're going to go into, but the good news of this passage, it all means he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for you and for me. And he's able to save us to the uttermost because he's always living to make intercession for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for deep words, for, for challenging words like this that help us think deeply, that help us think rationally and reason. Lord, help us understand the whole breadth of Scripture. Father, thank you for words like this that help us see how much greater you are. Help us see that we can have confidence in you because you're greater than the law. You're far superior. Jesus, help us understand your word. God, help us keep track of, of the, the train of thought in these scriptures, Lord, I pray. And Lord, I pray that our view of scripture will be elevated. Our view of you will be elevated. We would just see your plan throughout history working as we dig in. So, Father, I pray for your grace for all who hear. I pray for your grace for me to, to preach this morning. We need your Holy Spirit. God, some things in Scripture are difficult to understand, but Lord, you give us your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, and I pray that you would this morning. Open up our eyes that we might hear and learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. People from previous generations, they would find it very difficult to live in the world we live in today. They would find it very different. My grandfather was born before the automobile was invented. Um, it would be a very different world to adapt to. He, he wouldn't understand all of the different changes, the computers and all that kind of stuff that we have in. And a lot's changed even in just the last 40 years. Um, as my family continues to remind me how old I am, they remind me of how much has changed since I was a child. And I got a birthday card from my sister on my 40th birthday. And, and it said, do you realize that 40 years ago, call waiting referred to a line outside of a phone booth? A flat screen was something you put in your windows to keep the insects out. An airbag was somebody who talked too much. Spam was found only in the kitchen. And, and I remember that because I, I grew up eating some spam. It wasn't, wasn't good stuff. Now it means too much email. A cell phone was what you used to make your one call from jail. <laughs> High-speed access was an on-ramp to the freeway. 
a lot of things have changed in the last 40 years even. And my kids can't relate to the idea that we didn't have computers when I was a kid. They don't understand, you didn't have a computer, you didn't have like, like a phone and... No, I didn't have a cell phone. We didn't even have cordless phones when I was a kid, okay? We had, we had the thing. We had a rotary, too, and we had to dial that. And My wife's family actually had a party line still, so um, it, <laughs> things were just different. My kids can't relate. They're, they're astounded, and they're like, it must have been horrible. No computer? What did you do research on? What did you look things up on? Like, we had this thing called the library, and card catalogs, and you poured these drawers out, and you looked up. It's, you can't relate. And uh, they don't understand. And for us, though, it's hard. Sometimes we approach scriptures like this. It's hard for us to relate to it because we don't even get, we don't get the Old Testament to some degree. We don't get the Old Testament priesthood. We don't understand why we need a priest. We don't understand what priests are for. There's a big cultural gap when we read the Bible at times. And this morning, we're going to, to bridge some cultural gaps, some, some gaps of understanding. See, this book was written to Hebrews originally, who understood the law, who understood the significance and importance of the law, and who understood the significance and importance of the priesthood, and the fact that those two things were interrelated. You can't separate the law and the priesthood. So for us, we don't get that. Maybe you grew up in a Catholic church. And if you did, you, you really don't get what a priest was really supposed to be for. It's not a little booth that you go into and talk to. And, and you don't see their face, but they, they talk back to you and it's this weird, weird thing happening. Um, that's not what priesthood is for. The priesthood was to mediate between us and God. And, and we need to understand what the priesthood is for. So in, in this passage, the point that we see in the verses, it's, it's not explicitly written in the verses. So often when you read scripture, there's some implied things. So this morning, the first point we're going to look at is actually an implied point. And, and the implied point of all of these verses is one that we can't relate to normally. And it's that we need a priest. Is that man requires a priest to relate to God. We don't think that way often, do we? Because most of the time we like wake up and we say, hey, good morning, God. Great to see you this morning. And we don't even think about it. We just, we take our relationship with God casually. We don't understand the fact that we actually need, we require a priest to relate to God. But you see, even in the pagan culture of ancient times, it was assumed, it was an assumption when the Old Testament was written and before that, that a priest was needed to go between God and man because, you see, God the Creator was holy and great and man offended God and there was no way to bridge that gap and we needed some intermediator some mediator, some, somebody go between us and the Lord. In the Old Testament, it's even more obvious as you're reading through the first five books of the Old Testament. Maybe you're, you keep saying, like, what in the world is... Why in the world does Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they have so much about the priesthood. They give so many details. Why? Why so many details? Because it was, it was necessary, it was required for the priesthood... The priesthood was required for man to relate to God and all of the laws, not just the moral code, but all of the little details about how to wash dishes and about mold on the walls and all that kind of stuff. It was all required in order to relate to God. The reason why it was required is because man has a big problem. You know, sometimes we can think our biggest problem is that, you know, hey, the electricity went out and I, I don't have any water this morning, hot water to shower. Well, that's, you know, that's not our biggest problems. Our, our biggest problems are not... Our culture, our biggest problems are not who's in office. Our biggest problems are, are not the state of decline of the United States. It's not, those aren't our biggest problems. Our biggest problem 
is the fact that mankind has sinned against a holy God and separated from God. And our biggest problem is that how can a sinful man be restored back to a right relationship with a holy God when God's presence can't bear any sin? That is our problem. Sometimes we forget that's our biggest problem. In Romans 1.18, it tells us why this is a problem. It says in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God, okay, the wrath of the Creator, the unlimited, unmitigated wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. That is a problem. That's a big problem. Our problem is that ever since the sin of Adam, mankind's needed to be saved from the wrath of God that burns against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. How about you? Have you, have you ever done anything unrighteous? Anybody? Anybody ever done anything ungodly? Anybody just obeyed God's moral law, His, His holy law, His commands? Well, if so, we had a problem. And it requires a mediator. The main problem is not famine or pestilence or war or plague or any of those things. The biggest problem we have is how to be reconciled with our holy God, our holy creator, and not face his wrath when the judgment comes. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. You didn't know what your biggest problem was. Your biggest problem is that if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to face the wrath of God. When the judgment comes, you may not feel like the judgment is coming, but it will come. But from the very beginning, here's the good news. From the very beginning, and what we're seeing in these verses, in the very beginning, God was planning a way to relate to him, to be reconciled back to him, to be accepted into his presence. The whole way he did that was through the priesthood. God called people to worship him, and yet, if you remember, in Genesis, when we went through that last year, they continually rebelled, and they failed time after time. Even the patriarchs, the people who were supposed to be the, the heroes of the faith, they failed miserably every time. God gave Abraham a promise. He believed in the promise. And then he went and said, hey, well, maybe Hagar, you know, maybe we can make this thing happen. Um, the patriarchs failed. They, they kept failing time after time. And all throughout history, mankind failed. Even after God, God says, you know what, I'm done. And so he wipes out all of humanity with a flood. The people continued to rebel. And they didn't learn the lesson. They continually wandered and disobeyed God, ignored God. So... Remember back in history, God calls this guy named Abraham out of the land of Ur and, and, and he made a covenant with him to bless him and make him a father of many nations and to bless all the families of the earth through him. Then God calls Abraham, if you remember, to sacrifice his only son. What a graphic picture that is. Like, that's messed up. What's going on there? Well, that was a, that was a type, a precursor to the fact that there needs to be sacrifice. And so God, instead of letting Abraham sacrifice his son, he says, no, I'm going to provide a substitute. Of a ram. And I'm going to provide a substitute. Because there needs to be sacrifice to relate to me. And then 450 years later, God calls this guy named Moses. And he actually, he puts Moses in this little basket. And he has, has a princess discover him. And it's just amazing all the events that God orchestrates. And he gives the people all these laws. And he gives them ways to relate to God and come into his presence through animal sacrifices in their place. And then God commands a whole tribe. That's what this background is telling us. God commands a whole tribe, the tribe of Levi. It was a descendants of Abraham, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He commands the entire tribe to be set apart, and their entire lives are to be all about sacrifice in the sacrificial system and making atonement for mankind and, and making a way to come between God and man, to be mediators 
And this whole old covenant, though, these moral laws, these ceremony laws, these sacrificial systems, God was making it plain. Why in the world do we have Leviticus with all these laws and, and numbers? Oh, my goodness. Like, try having a quiet time and staying awake through numbers sometimes. It's, it's, it's daunting. Why in the world do we have Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. What are, what are those all about? It's meant to show us that we don't come to God on our own terms. We need the priesthood. We need a mediator. We need somebody else. We need a way to have access to God. And the whole reason that there are priests in the Old Testament was to intercede between God and man. It teaches us that we need forgiveness for sins and we can't do that on our own. We can't provide the way. We can't come to God on our own. And then one of the first things... Right of Hebrews is trying to show in these first 11 verses. There's a lot of verses here, right? The first 11 verses is trying to show us this whole sacrificial system. What's he saying? The whole sacrificial system, the entire Levitical priesthood, he's saying from the very beginning, even before it was instituted, even before Moses came along 450 years later, even before that, the entire sacrificial system, it was inferior. It was lacking. And that's the second point we're going to talk about this morning. The Levitical priesthood was always lacking it was always lacking and the way that he shows us that was always lacking is to go back even before it was instituted that's why he's talking about abraham and melchizedek before the the law came 450 years later and it requires we pay attention remember i was reminding you that this morning requires we pay attention these 11 verses why we learned earlier not to be dull of hearing do the hard work we're trying to listen understand what he's saying because it's important even if it's difficult at times and so he remembers the story. The author of Hebrews, he's remembering the story of, he, of Genesis 14. When Abraham, he's coming back from rescuing Lot. I don't know if you remember that story from Genesis or not. But Abraham, he'd just gone out and he really whipped up on these, these four kings. These four kings had defeated five kings, taken all the loot back with them. And Abraham goes out with some bad dudes from his household and he whips up on them. On four kings, four cities worth, 300 guys, they go out and they tear them up. And then they take all the loot, all the bounty, all the spoils, and they come back. It's kind of a graphic picture. You know, the beginning of our passage says, after Abraham returned from the slaughter. <laughs> Whoa. Okay, he's coming back from a slaughter. This was a gory, graphic thing. He slaughtered all the people and he comes back with all these spoils. And he's victorious. And back then, the victors, they would have they would have been entitled to all the bounty, all the spoils, all the loot. The victors would have kept the loot, and what they would have done is returned all the families of their allies back to the families, but they would have kept everything else. It would have made Abraham an extremely wealthy man. Four cities, actually five cities worth of loot, plus the four kings he conquered, nine cities worth of loot. He, he would have been a massively wealthy man. But what does he do? Turn over to Genesis 14 for a moment. We're going to start reading verse 16, actually in verse 17, after Abraham has conquered his enemies. Actually, we may have on overheads here. It's Genesis 7, 14, verse 17. It says, After his return, after Abraham's return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, one of the guys who got defeated, and Abraham was bringing his, his people back, went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Now let's skip down from verse 17 to verse 21. And the story reads naturally. So Sodom goes out to meet Abraham, and it continues. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. He wasn't being generous. He was, he was appealing to him based on the laws of the time. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, and here's something crazy, nine cities worth of bounty. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say I've made Abraham rich. So we've got this account 
of Abraham. He's coming back from the king of Sodom and meeting him. And they have this exchange. And Abraham vows not to benefit from such a corrupt king and be defiled by it. I'm not going to take all, this, all, all the corrupt wealth. I'm going to give it back to you. But here's the odd thing. The reason I want to read the whole passage in the context is to show you that it reads really easily on its own. And so the king of Sodom comes out. He says, hey, can I have my people back? You can keep all the stuff. Abraham says, no, I'm not going to keep all the stuff. I'm not going to benefit from this because I don't want you to say, or anybody else to be able to say, you made Abraham rich, God's made me rich. And then we're done, right? But that's not how the scripture reads. It reads very oddly. It's a very odd passage. In the middle of introducing Sodom, it interrupts the narrative. So, hey, here's this guy named Sodom. And then and he comes out to meet Abraham. But in the middle of that, which would be natural flow, if you're writing a book, that's probably how you would write it. We have a few writers in our audience this morning, and you'd probably write a book that seemed to make sense. And it flows like that. It's a continuous narrative. But the writer of Hebrews, Moses, he interrupts it. In the middle of this, he introduces Melchizedek, this weird guy from out of nowhere, who's a king and a priest. And he blesses Abraham. So wait a minute, this is the, the exalted patriarch of all of Israel. This is the father of the many nations. And he is inferior to this guy we know nothing about. And not only does he bless him, he pays homage to him, and he gives him a huge amount of money. He gives him 10% of nine cities worth of bounty. That's a lot of money. He gives him 10% of all of that spoils that he's gotten from the five kings and their armies. It was a huge amount of money to tithe. And the point is, is that Melchizedek must have been much, 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 much greater than Abraham. He must have been so much greater if Abraham immediately recognizes, I need to tithe to this guy. I need to give him 10% of all these spoils. I'm not going to keep them. I don't give him 10%. And you know what? He's going to bless me. And Melchizedek must have been an extremely important character. And so you're expecting, if you've read the book of Genesis, they've got a lot of genealogies in Genesis. And sometimes you can bog down on those. And genealogies of everybody who's important in Genesis... But here's the odd thing. There's no genealogy of Melchizedek. It must have been really odd. So Abraham, this great patriarch, goes out to meet Melchizedek, bows down to him, receives a blessing, gives him 10% of everything. It's relating to it in our day. If you like watching on TV, okay, we have a special news bulletin. We're going to interrupt your, your program right now. Whatever you're watching, we're going to interrupt it. We have a special news bulletin. We're going to show you a video of President Obama bowing down to a foreign king. And he's giving 10% of all the U.S.'s money to this foreign king. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. It'd be a little jolting. You wouldn't really, it wouldn't be understandable. It doesn't make sense what's going on. Who is this guy? Hey, uh, I want to know who our leader is bowing down to. That's important to know. It's important to know who he's giving all his money to. What's up with that? And yet, in Genesis, as quickly and bizarrely as the narrative introduces this guy without any explanation, he goes away again. And that's really unusual for Genesis, and that's what the author of Hebrews is picking up on. It's really weird. He says, anyone who has, you know, anyone who's anyone is explained with a genealogy. Remember all those genealogies in Genesis? Surprisingly, Scripture is silent on who this Melchizedek was. Not a word. We don't know who his ancestors were, who his family was, who his descendants were. As far as we know, not literally, but literarily, so not literally, but literarily, from a literary perspective, he had no family. And not literally, but literarily, he had no beginning and no end. So he's, he's introduced, no beginning, no end. And if you're an author, you would introduce a character over the beginning and end, especially if he's a significant character, pivotal character. But just as he appears, we don't know anything about his death either. 
And you can imagine, if you were a Hebrew and you're reading these passages in Genesis, you think, what? What's this all about? Hang on. And then it's never explained. It's like this big cliffhanger for 450 years. And then King David, he's reading it. He's having his quiet time, right? King David's reading the first five books of the Old Testament. He's having his quiet time. He reads it. And then God says, I'm going to reveal something to you, David. This, this, this Melchizedek, this order of Melchizedek, that was before Abraham. It was a different priesthood. And by the way, I'm going to give you a descendant who's going to reign in that same order of Melchizedek. And he's going to reign forever. And so David, in Psalm 110, writes about a same priest who would come in the same way that Melchizedek did, without, without explanation. He would seemingly come from nowhere, who had no beginning and no end, whose, whose, in, whose beginning we don't understand and whose end we will never know. In the author of Hebrews, he begins to show how God wrote in the Scripture from the very beginning before the law even began. That's what he's doing in these complex verses here. He's showing us that before the law began. Abraham was before the law, right? 450 years later was Moses. That was the law. Abraham was before the law. Before the law began, God was setting up a type and showing that the priesthood was lacking even before he set it up. From the very beginning. He wrote in Scripture, even before the law was again, a typology of a different, more superior priesthood that was greater than the patriarch Abraham. And he shows that this priesthood, it came outside of the promised family. It came before Moses and all the priests and descendants of Levi. What he's doing is he's making some important points to show the inferiority of the, the priesthood. That's a whole verse, verse 11 verses, okay? You tracking? Are you tracking? Yes? Excellent. If you're not, pinch somebody beside you who's sleeping. Um, in verse 2, he explains that Melchizedek's name, it means, the very, it means the king of righteousness, and he was the king of peace. So, in the same way, Jesus has come as the king of righteousness and the king of peace. In a similar way to the Son of God, we literarily know nothing of his beginning, nor is any account about the end of Melchizedek's life. We don't hear about God's beginnings from a literary perspective. It had no beginning and no end, and we have no literary beginning and end to Melchizedek's life. It, it doesn't mean that he literally didn't born and wasn't born and, 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 and died. It just means that he was a man that we don't know anything about his beginning and his ending. And in that way, in that way, in, in, he resembles, it says in Hebrews. He's not the Son of God. It's not a, it's not a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. This is, this is a resemblance of the Son of God who's always lived and has no end. Okay, you, you tracking with that? Good. It, he wasn't him, but he resembles him. Now look down at verses 4 to 7. Look down your Bibles for a minute. What the author of Hebrews is saying is because Abraham paid tithes to him, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Clearly, Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, the father of the promises. And, and in fact, he's superior to all the tribes of Israel, including Levi. And look in verse 8. He says it's as if the tithe was received by somebody who never died. In verses 9 and 10, he says... In a sense, one might even say, he's stretching it a little bit, that Levi and the whole Levitical priesthood was inferior to priests of Melchizedek because Levi was commanded to take tithes from all the tribes of Israel in the priesthood. He paid a tithe through Abraham as his ancestor to Melchizedek. So Levi gathered tithes from all of Israel. All of Israel was giving tithes to Levi. And so all of Israel, including Levi, essentially gave tithes to Melchizedek, a superior priesthood. You, you tracking with that? Okay, good. He says the Levitical priesthood was always inferior to this other kind of priesthood. That's the point of those first 11 verses. 
And let's look at Psalm 110 quickly. It's, it's, by the way, that's the most quoted passage in the entire Old Testament in the New Testament. It, the most quoted Old Testament passage is Psalm 110, so it means we have to pay attention to it. So let's look in Psalm 110. Verse 2. This is God giving a divine oracle to David. David the king, the highest authority in all of Israel, the leader of Israel, says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Wait a minute, who's the Lord of David? That can only be God. It's a theocracy here. He says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. After the order, in the same way as Melchizedek. And so, He is picking up on this in verse 11. And he asks a question. So in verse 11, the author of Hebrews asks the question. He says, why in the world would 450 years after God established the law? So he's saying, God establishes the law through Moses, which was many hundreds of years after Abraham. And then 450 years after Moses. So yeah, a thousand years between Abraham and David. And a thousand years, 450 years after the law was established, God says, he's going to make another priesthood. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying, why in the world would you need another priesthood if the first one was good enough? You getting that? Why would God need to raise up another kind of priest if the Levitical priesthood was good enough? Clearly, if God was going to appoint one as priest after the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood of the Levites was not going to last and it wasn't good enough. And he gave us that picture through David. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing, he's, he's, he's reading his Old Testament very closely. And he's putting some things together and saying that, wait a minute... God completely said that the priesthood was going to be done away with when he, when he spoke to David, a totally different priesthood. And you wouldn't need to do that if the first priesthood was good enough. This Jesus, who would need to come and serve as priest after the order of Melchizedek, it meant the entire Levitical priesthood, the entire Old Testament law, was not good enough. Maybe you place your hope in coming to God through some ritual, through some system, through coming to church here on Sunday mornings. You think that dressing up coming to church, it makes you okay and acceptable to God. And God's saying, no, 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 all of the law. It wasn't good enough. You needed a different priest. We need another priest, somebody to mediate between God and man. You know why? Because the law doesn't cut it. It's not, never been good enough. It's never meant to be good enough. The law has always meant to be pointing to the fact that we need another kind of priesthood. Because priests die. And so, and the priests are jerks sometimes. You have Eli's sons, they were, they were idiots. And you have priests who are misbehave. I mean, Aaron's sons, at the very beginning, they offer profane fire and God kills them. The entire priesthood, from the very outset, it was insufficient, not good enough, could never fully give us access to God. And so, there must have been an, another priesthood that was needed. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Okay, so that's the first 11 verses. We're done. We're done with those 11 verses. Now we can move on. So the third thing we're going to see is that he's drawing our attention. The entire law has been set aside. The entire law has been set aside. This is huge. If you were a Hebrew reading these verses, you would have probably been offended. Wait a minute. The law has been set aside. It's useless. It's too weak. What? You know, it would be as huge as if you took the entire form of U.S. government, the Constitution, and you took all that and you said, you know what, we're done. We're setting it aside. Take our entire national histories, republic, our laws, our rules, we're going to change them, overlight, make them, make them obsolete. That would be a shocking thing to us, right? That'd be a huge shock. Oh my goodness, our entire Constitution's gone. All three 
branches of government, gone. Everything we know about representative government, gone. Everything's changed. Now we have something new, some new way to operate. We couldn't imagine it. But he says, I'm doing away with everything because I'm giving you something better. If you're a Hebrew, you would have thought that God would have blessed all the nations through the law and the priestly system of sacrifices. But if there was a change in the priesthood, he's saying, it would mean the entire Old Testament law would have to be set aside. You see, because remember I said at the beginning, the priesthood and the law, they're inextricably linked. They're together. That's why we have all these ceremonial washings and all these things about how to come uh, into the temple and whether you're clean or unclean. All those things related to the priesthood and all those laws were, were linked together. And if you set aside the priesthood, then you're setting aside all the law. You understanding that, right? Excellent. It's not just that the priesthood has changed. The entire way that man comes before God has changed. That's what he's saying. The entire way that we relate to God has changed. Everything's changed. Not just the priesthood, the whole laws. Mankind no longer comes to God. Listen to this. No longer comes to God on the basis of obedience to any laws. No animal sacrifices will do. No ritual cleansings. No ceremonies. No washings. No outward obedience is going to suffice. It's all been set aside in a fundamental way that man comes to God has changed with the new priesthood of Jesus. That's really good news for us. We don't have to keep six sets of dishes and do all these different ceremonial washings because that never was good enough anyway. And... Validity of the priesthood of Jesus has not been proven by fulfilling any legal requirement, he says. But through proving his power. So how did Jesus prove that he he was powerful and sufficient to be the priest who would last forever and not be set aside and not be put away as the law and the priesthood were? He says because Jesus, he's got something none of those priests ever had. Jesus is a priest in a totally different way. He's indestructible. Maybe like Iron Man or Superman or some other superhero, Thor or the Avengers. They're, they're really all just, just pale imitations of really an indestructible man. Jesus died and was risen to life, proving he was indestructible. He has an indestructible life. The law has been set aside, and now he's proven he, he's the kind of priest we can trust in. Because he has an indestructible life. Verse 18. Look down at verse 18. It tells us the whole law is set aside because it's too weak to reconcile God to man. And it's useless. Whoa! The law was useless? What's the whole point of the Old Testament? He means it's useless in making man truly righteous before God. It wasn't useless in the sense of it functioned. It functioned to point all of humanity, all of history, all of mankind to see that we can't do it on our own. We can't come to God on our own merit. We can't come to God on, our, on the basis of our own worth or our own performance. We can't come to God and say, look what I've done. And the whole point of the Old Testament is to say, we need a mediator. We need someone to make a way for us to come to God because we can't do it on our own no matter how daggone hard we try. And all of humanity tried and failed. Even when God gave them away, they couldn't do it. It was useless. The law was never able to make anyone perfect. No one could perfectly keep the law and be made completely clean before God. That's got some implications for us today, doesn't it? We may not think we have to obey the Levitical laws, and I don't think anybody here is. Thank God we can eat bacon, right? But we, (coughs) 
We try to attain righteousness, though, through our own works. You ever do that? You ever try to attain righteousness through any works? You ever, you ever try to be good enough for God? You ever bummed out when you feel like you're not good enough for God? What that means is that you're really trusting in your ability to be good enough for God. When you couldn't be good enough, then you got depressed because you realize you really are a loser and you're not good enough for God. We try to make ourselves acceptable before God. We try to clean up our act. But you know what? Nothing we do, no matter how perfectly we obey God, nothing we ever do will be able to justify us. The law, it's been annulled, and it's foolish for us to try to seek to be justified in our own merit in any way. So now, it's not about trusting a certain way of doing things, or what kind of music you do or don't listen to, or um, whether you dress or don't dress up. And It's not about any of those things, a certain way of parenting, a certain way of talking or acting, and acceptable before God. We need a better hope. The law is useless and weak. We should say, you know what it is. I don't want to trust in any of those things. I don't want to try to pretend that I'm a, a good person on my own. I don't want to try to pretend that I have hope in God and trusting in anything else except for a mediator who has an indestructible life. That's where I can trust. And so this is where verse 19 comes in. Look down at verse 19. The author of Hebrews, he's telling us that trusting in the law is useless and pointless and hopeless. And then the fourth thing we see in verse 19, he says we have a better Hope. We've got a better hope. Why has he been telling us all about the law and all those things? Because life is hopeless apart from Jesus. Life is hopeless when we try to come to God in our own merit. Life is hopeless when we try to be good enough. And if you're trying to be good enough, you're going to experience extreme hopelessness and depression. Because you can't ever be good enough. But we have a better hope. We have a much, much, much better hope. It's like if my kids, if I tell them, hey, we're going to have a three-day vacation at home doing chores and playing board games. Isn't that going to be fun? My kids will think, yay. That's not a great hope. It's a hope. Get to spend some time with Dad. Play some board games at night. Maybe Pictionary. Yeehaw. <laughs> but then I come and say, you know what? I was just messing with you. We're taking the whole year off. And we're going to Disney World, and it's going to be all expenses paid, and it's free. That's a, that's a better hope, right? That'd be a better hope. They get excited about that. As you're reading through these verses, you're meant to see how, how that first hope was never sufficient, never good enough. It was, it was good because it provided some way to relate to our holy God, and, but it was never quite enough. And now we've been given a better hope. We don't have another hope. We don't have a hope. We have a better hope. It's not just for a year. It's an eternal hope. We have better access in the presence of God than the law ever provided. See, the Israelites were blessed beyond all the peoples of the earth because they had a way to relate to God. Now, we have a better hope. We can relate to God directly through our high priest. All of us. Better forgiveness than all the sacrifices of animals ever brought. Better freedom, better privileges, better promises, better help. We have a far superior priesthood. We have far superior hope. Are you lacking hope this morning? Maybe you're hoping in the wrong place. Hoping in circumstances, hoping in your abilities or inabilities. Seeing that you're frail and weak and useless. We have a better hope. One that's not useless, that's not frail, that's not weak. That can't be set aside, that will never be set aside, that never ends. 
This word better is one of the most wonderful, blessed, important words in the book of Hebrews. Remember, Jesus is better than the prophets of old, we learned in the beginning of Hebrews. Why? He's the very incarnate word of God. We learned he's better than the angels, and they were bad dudes, as we knew, right? They were, they were guys who conquered nations with one angel, and Jesus is better than the angels. He's better and more faithful than Moses. He's better than David as a king who reigns of the whole, he reigns of the whole universe, and everything's been subjected to him. He's a better priest after the order of Melchizedek. And because he's the son of God, he reigns not just for a short lifespan and then dies like all the Levitical priests. He serves as a mediator forever. That's a better hope. We don't have a mediator who's going to go away or leave us or mess up or do something wrong. We have a permanent mediator that we can always trust in. And his sacrifice, it stands forever because he stands forever. Our hope for drawing near to God is better than any confidence in the law, better than any high priest Jesus is like Melchizedek in that he's superior to Abraham, the patriarch. He's superior to Levi, the priesthood. And this better priesthood is meant to give us hope in drawing near to God. Do you feel like you can't come near to God sometimes when you feel like you're sinful because you are? you feel like you fail? Like God wouldn't want you? you feel like you can't come near to God? Like you don't belong somehow? Here's what this better hope means. That Jesus says, no, you do. Because I've paid the price for all all of your failures, all your weaknesses, all of your foolishness. And so now, when you come to God, He doesn't see all that stuff because I've paid for it. Instead, He sees you as if you're completely righteous every time, even when you really aren't. He views you that way, treats you that way. And now you know what? You can come near to God through me, through believing that I've done that for you, through trusting I've done that for you. He's passed through the heavens, it says in Hebrews 4.14. Our high priest can sympathize with our weaknesses. Our high priest makes it possible to come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy to find grace and help in time of need. Do you need help? Do you need grace? We have a better hope. Not only that, unlike any priest, verses 20 through 22 tells us that Jesus, and you look in verses 20 22, this is what it's telling us. Jesus has not just been appointed by a commandment. He's been appointed by God himself, the creator of all. And it's an oath that he'll never change his mind about. God will never change his mind, says you are priest forever. That will never change. We have a hope that lasts. The fact that God's appointed as priest forever with an oath in his own name, as we heard about a couple weeks ago, God, God never changes. He never breaks his promises. That should give us confidence that we have access to the Father fully through Jesus eternally. That's a better hope. We should lack no confidence. If you lack confidence, you're probably looking at yourself too much. Stop it. Look at Jesus. He's a better hope. The reason we lack confidence is because we're aware of ourselves too much and what we've done or not done. Lack no confidence. We have a superior high priest Who's a better hope? Hope nowhere else. His priesthood and his mediating between God and man will never end. In verses 23 and 24, look down there. It tells us he continues forever. Okay, so after we die, will at some point we have to to merit favor before God? No, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. He will constantly be showing God that He's paid for our sins. 
He'll stand forever as the better mediator, better promises, but it still gets even better. Look in verse 25. Look down at verse 25. It's the last thing we're going to look at very briefly. Point five is Jesus eternally intercedes for us. He's the true king of righteousness. Melchizedek was only a shadow of that. He's brought us his righteousness. And he rules with his righteousness. And his righteousness rules in our lives if we trusted in him. And not only that, he's the true king of peace. He brings peace between God and man. Where ever since Adam we can never have peace with God. We can have peace with God through him. God's not angry with us as his children. He'll never pour out his wrath on us. Jesus has no beginning, no end. It says his life is indestructible. He won't ever die. He won't ever be replaced. He continues forever. And it says he's able to save. Okay, he's able to save you partially, and then you've got to do the rest on your own. When God saves you, then he expects you to be perfect after that. And if you're not, he's going to whip you, right? No! He saves to the uttermost. To the uttermost he saves. To the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him. Not through our own merit, but through him. You see, Jesus sacrificed not a bull, not a goat, not a lamb. He sacrificed himself. And he stands eternally presenting himself in the wounds in his hands and his feet. That's why, you wonder why, he always has wounds in his hands and his feet. He's eternally presenting them to God and saying, See, I did it. He's saying to us, See, I did it. Forever. They'll never go away. His, his body, not only did he take on human flesh... So God became man and took on human flesh. That's what the whole Christmas season is all about. But not only did he do that, his body was pierced and marred. Made unappealing to look at the scars that he holds forever for you and me. For us to have access to God freely. And as he holds up those wounds, like Thomas, when remember Thomas, he doubted and he looked, Jesus said, look at my hands. You see these holes? And then he says, take your hand and put it in my side. That's a graphic picture. See, Jesus was already resurrected. And he still bore those wounds. And he still bears those wounds for us forever. And we're to take our hands and see Jesus' wounds. We're to put our hands in his side and trust there. Say, Jesus, I trust in your merit, not my own. His wounds are meant to give us peace. He stands forever as a reminder that He's wounded for our transgressions. He bore all the punishment wrath of God for us in our place. He provided Himself as the ultimate, eternally sufficient sacrifice once and for all on the cross. That's what it's saying. And not only... Not only is He our high priest, He serves forever and He's interceding for us. He's praying for us when we're weak and he's praying for us in a way that he understands everything about us because he's a man he was tempted in every way as we are yet he never sinned and yet he's praying for us specifically that we'd have hope in him that we trust in him and not ourselves that we come to God through him that we draw near to God he's praying that we would stay focused on God he's ever faithful and never fails to make intercession for us there's never a sinful moment that you have there's never a lapse or outright failure when Jesus will be unavailable to you. There's never a moment when you are too far gone that He's not saying, I'm praying for you. Come back. Draw near. What are you doing? Come through me. 
There's never a time when He won't hear your cries. There's never a time when the wrath of God will come on anybody who draws near to God through repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus. That's amazing. Jesus is always for us. He's always interceding for us, always praying, always on duty, always providing access to God. And as we draw near to God, trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, all of our sins are placed on Him and all of His righteousness is credited to us. And we come into His holy presence completely clean from all unrighteousness. Do you, do you get that? Do you experience the joy of that? We come through Him, our mediator, our better hope. And He always sees us as completely righteous. That's just dumbfounding. That should give us joy. We're completely cleansed by the blood of our great high priest. And God now bids us to come near to Him through Jesus. And our better hope is that He saves us not partially or temporarily. He's able to save us to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through Him, and it says why? Since he always lives to make intercession for us. I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come forward. I want to sing in response to this. These, these, these words, this passage should make us want to sing of the better hope that we don't trust in ourselves, we don't trust in our abilities, we don't trust in our righteousness or unrighteousness. We, we, don't, have to, we don't have to doubt when we have sin in our lives. We don't have to doubt when we see failure. We don't have to doubt that we can come to God clean. We don't have to wonder, is God really angry with me still because I know I'm really a loser and I know better? No, we don't need to have any doubts. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. And here's the whole point of the entire passage. It's verse 25. He's able to save. He is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for us. Go ahead and stand and we'll pray. Father, I pray that we would see that we are insufficient in any law following, any trusting in our ability is insufficient. And Lord, let us set it aside as you've set aside the law. Let us set aside our useless works, our weaknesses even. Lord, let us set aside our own inabilities. And let us look to the indestructible Jesus. The indestructible life that we can trust in. Lord, I pray that we would look to a better hope. And we would come draw near to you. And thank you that you save us to the uttermost and you are fully able. God, no matter what we're facing, I pray for all those who are facing temptations or doubts or weaknesses or fears, Lord, or lack of joy. I pray that you would, you would give us hope in the fact that you are able to save us to the uttermost and change us. No matter what we've done, no matter how many times we've failed, God, thank you that you call us to draw near to you through Jesus. And you make us righteous and completely clean. Lord, I pray that we would worship you in spirit and in light of that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.